Welcome everyone to this very, very, very special episode of the European VC because we have moved to the great outdoors on the rooftop terrace of our good friend Mark Penkela. <laughs> we're here at Superventure and we're talking to Nils. And Nils, you're joined next to you by David. And as I said, Mark Penkela here. Tell us a bit about why are you at Superventure? So I'm at Superventure um, because we, as a family office, we are a family office, so first of all, um, that's, <laughs> I would that say, <laughs> that, that's important. So we are the family office of Jens Vase, who founded this company uh, 10 years ago, then sold it, or not sold it, merged with another company and created, we call it the Entrepreneurial Single Family Office. And uh, so we want to build up, you know, our VC portfolio, venture capital portfolio, but also while super venture there's a super return so we want also to build up our uh, private equity portfolio and so i want to get to know interesting gps interesting vc funds to see um where we should invest uh, which are interesting and which are not interesting i would say you were both at super venture and super return and i think we just spoke a bit about kim kardashian being here yeah and we agreed that well the big money is at uh, at super return but Superventure is the hot place, so most likely he'll be at Superventure. I, I assume so. <laughs> that was their conclusion. <laughs> Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. An alliance. This, this is a union of values, of values, values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, 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 acting. This show is not investment advice and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. First of all, let's start out by, by diving a bit into your story. How did you break into venture? So I, like, so my first experience with venture, I would say, I'm started at university. Um, I studied at WHU, which is, I would say, not famous, but quite common for, you know, venture building, founding. Um, but also the first touching points with VCs when they pitch on, you know, those events. You want to become an analyst at our VC. So they were my first touching points. But then later on, I moved into wealth management and tried to sell VC <laughs> to people. So did that as well. How did that work? <laughs> um, I did that 2020 and 2021, so ah, that was, that was, I would say quite perfect. Uh, the, you know, everything was nice, the money was there, money was cheap. So um, And then you pivoted to a new role because 2020... Yeah, so I had to pivot. Uh, so I pivot, pivoted to a new role from, I would say they call it from the sell side to the buy side. So I became the head of family office uh, for the family office. And now I, I, you know, I explained I'm now in the really nice seat because I can decide if you want to invest or not. And I don't have to sell anything. I have to sell sometimes our family office, but um, I can decide if you want to work with the VC or not. Let me just ask you, Nils, because we're going to get into a pivotal moment in your career. But I think we'll have some people and we spoke about that later in this interview. We're going to ask you what's your advice to your 10 year younger self? And then you said, I thought, what would I say to a 16 year old Nils? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I have to ask you, how does one end up being the head of a family office as a 26 year old? I would say 
I started young at university and then I didn't do a master degree. That was the first difference. So I started right after a bachelor, went to London, did some investment banking, decided, okay, investment banking is not 100% what I want to do in the near future or the next 10 years. So I switched to wealth management. What do you do in wealth management? You speak to very interesting people. Sometimes you speak to very, you know, prosper, you know, they build their own company and they're, you know, um, you learn a lot from them and you start to, you know, develop your own network. And then when you network, you have the opportunity and then sometimes the opportunity comes and you don't have, I would say, you have a clear vision and you sometimes look also left and right and then said, you know, do you really want to get into the family office space? And then I said, yes, of course, why not? And then me and Jens really got along very well. Yeah. And he said, you know, smartness has nothing to do with age. It's about, you know, how you commit yourself and how you, you know, turn or how, how often do you, you know, you say you have to think outside the box. I would think, you know, that's the most important uh, thing he says because, you know, that makes really the difference to all the others. And so then he said, you know, on my side, I'm fine. He said, okay, let's do it. And so then he said, here's the job. Let's start. That is a great story. Now give us your pivotal moment in your career. What, what has shaped you as an investor? You know, it was, you know, I, I'm now in the industry now for almost five years. And I think, you know, I experienced something, you know, people didn't experience the last 20, 30 years, you know, Corona. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting. I was sitting in London um, right at that time in the equity research department. And you looked at, you know, the senior analysts left or right who are in the market for like 20, 30 years. And they had no clue what's going on. They had no clue. They were like, I don't know what to tell the investors. We don't know. It's like markets are crashing. Stocks are crashing. Investors are ringing every five minutes. What's with the portfolio? What was the stock? Do I have to sell it? And um, the answer was, we don't know. And, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, um, but, you know, it was like, you know, we don't know. And that was like really really interesting to see how markets can really crash it's it's crazy so you it's, they call it the black swan year um but you know it happens and um so it was quite interesting in the start of my career i was sitting in my apartment in london i was not allowed to leave my apartment due to the restriction markets were crashing nobody had a clue it's like okay nice start into you know your business career um, we don't know if uh, we have to stay the next 20 years at home. We don't know if the bank will survive because, you know, that was a big topic. Does a bank survive if there's no um, um, investment banking revenues, if everything is crashing? So I was like, you know, I was quiet, you know. And then what pivoted was like I became a little bit more risk averse, really. I was like, you know, don't be so much risk loving. You have to have a great mixture, for example, in the family office portfolio to sometimes to react to certain market condition, try to, you know, we call it like statistic, try to have the, you know, the correlation effect as small as possible. How you can do that, you have to be, you know, creative, which asset classes do you want to include in your portfolio? And then venture capital is like one piece of the portfolio. Then private equity is another piece of portfolio, real estate. Take a Now I'd love to hear you take a stance on the statement that most family do pre-seed and seed funds for the co-invest opportunity. 
Why? Just a short question to that. Family offices or families or rich families, I would say, well, wealthy, rich is not wealthy families. Yeah, we can't say rich anymore. That's, yeah, not, that's uh, only in the US they can say rich. Yeah, wealthy, wealthy families. They don't like to be known. It's really crazy. Like, for example, we work sometimes with really wealthy family offices. And they say, you know, your family office is like the first barrier. You do the DD. And if you, if you say it's a great investment, then you can introduce them to them because they don't want to do good at introduce to every startup and they don't want to have a website which states, okay, this is the family of there and there and they invest in the VC space. So that's the reason why they enjoy VC investments or fund investments because it's more anonymous. Go 20 years back, we, we would have definitely a different view from what we have today on how much alternative assets should be in your portfolio uh, from a wealth management perspective. And last three years, definitely saw VC also grow in some. And I'm curious to know, well, how do you think about that now? Because About alternative investments overall yeah, or about yeah, VC? Yeah, the entire alternative asset class and then VC as a subsector. It's, it's, it's nice to see, you know, we always say, you know, the, the, the States or the US is always first. You know, when they do something, you know, Europe follows five, 10, 20 later, uh, years later on. And what happened in US, you know, alternative investment, uh, illiquid investments became so popular. If you look at the biggest endowments in the US, like it's like it's huge part. Of course, you know, 2020 and 2023, maybe they have to reduce a little bit because, you know, um, stocks were crashing, bonds were crashing and they have like a fixed um, strategic asset allocation. So they were forced to sell the alternative investments. They didn't want to sell it. They were forced to sell it. But I would say overall, for every family office, for every investor, it doesn't have to be a family office. You have to be really keen in building up a really diversified portfolio, which includes alternative investments, which includes venture capital. It doesn't have to be sometimes a fund. Sometimes, you know, you can also use, you go the other way, you go like direct into the company and do something there, but you have to diversify yourself to be ready for the next crash, for the next uh, black swan year. The question that is probably f for you ever since you transitioned, been, you know, a lot of learnings, right? Because yeah. the first time now in a family office, really, you know, have to get into the mindset of how does a family think? And that is what I want to dive into because that is, I think probably the most, most often heard question from a VC is, well, so how do I raise, or, and then there's all kinds of questions about how you raise from LPs. And given that we speak to a lot of emerging VCs, it's primarily families. Uh, so I'm looking very much forward to dive into the topic of how does, how does your family think? And, and, and how do you see families in general literature? You strike me as someone who's probably read a bit about it as well. So You know, you phrase it on the VC side also, but you know, we get a lot of questions from startups, which also start to ask, how do I raise when I go to a family office? Because it is different. Um, so when they say, Niels, okay, here's my pitch deck. Is there anything you would change so we get more attractive for family office? Why? Because I would just say pre-match, a big part of their cap table was family offices or there was family office involved. And so they, other startups want to have family office as well as now as LPs or investors. But for VCs, I would say, what makes us family office or why our family office sometimes different is that uh, we look at VCs a little bit more like 
different. For us, it's really important that uh, VC works with our capital very efficiently and maybe also invest into companies which strive more for profitability than revenue growth. Why? Because we don't want to dilute our shares in the next funding round. We want to have always a big share in our investment. And we say it's for us better when the company grows a little bit you know, slower but healthier. And so for us... It's pro and, and you're saying that because you prefer to co-invest with the VC either at first ticket or later on. And your temperament as a family is would rather invest in something that doesn't dilute us as health and maybe doesn't grow as big. But then at least, you know, we know what we're looking at. Yeah, that's, I would say that's a big part. Also when we invest in VCs, yeah. I don't, you know, I can drop some names, but you know, for us, like a, a, a very nice VC investment was a VC, which convinced us that they would invest rather in more mature companies, which have a track record of profitability then a VC which tells us, you know, we are going to find the next 1,000x and that's how we're going to do the, you know, how we're going to do the return. Yeah, and that is incredibly interesting because I, you, I'm usually definitely banging the, the drum of the unicorn hunters. Um, and, 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 and I'd love to bring, bring in both much perspectives and David's here because, you know, I tend to say, well, it's not that there's not a place for the other type of investors and a place for the other type of startups. It's just that that is what I'm looking for when I do venture. It, no, it's very interesting. Like when we started fundraising, we talked about like, okay, what kind of type of investors do we have uh, as, a, as a VC fund? So we looked obviously at high net individuals, family offices, multifamily offices, fund of funds, institutionals, and all of them have a different rationale how they approach um, LP investing. And interestingly, we had all of them today here. We had a fund of fund, we have multifamily offices, we have you right design, by design. By yes. Design. Uh, Come on. It, it was all tailored. <laughs> and the motivation differs a lot so I wouldn't say that our pitch differs when we speak to them but we try to detect what are they actually looking for fund of fund it's a pure financial play they put money into a fund they pick 15 20 funds and they want to have a blended return of X and this is their business model institutional they have a little more okay look we have to deploy a lot of money so yes we do need financial return it doesn't have to be the stellar 30% IRR it has to be way above private market equivalent and we're happy with that looking at high nets you have to convince them with your brand you as persons they have to like you they have to feel engaged sometimes they look for co-investment opportunities family offices are a very different animal because the reason why they invest can differ so much um, it could be we want to learn that's the uh, first touch point to vc we go into a fund of funds then established vcs and then we go all the way down to emergent managers others look into I need funds which invest in, in my ecosystem, things I would do by nature as a direct investment. And there's others which are either driven by impact or I want to do something good, I want to pay back or a combination out of, hey, it has to be something which I understand and like, plus I need the stellar return. Yours is very atypical, not worse, not better, no judgment. It's just atypical like how we approach this, but actually very interesting. So I think it's very important for you uh, as a family office but as well for all of us to understand the actual rational why they would love to invest into a fund before they pitch to them otherwise it's just going to be a waste of time if you speak to them to one hour to detect yeah. at the end of the call no there's actually no fit because what we seek for is something different to build on that and to answer your question Bill, i think it also comes we come from also different perspectives right so 
you you said like I, I'm 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 drumming the beat of of, of unicorn because I'm less soap to be honest and yeah. you know that right. But I think what we have what we have in common and Mark you as well right. We love the early stages right, and we come from that because we are only doing venture. <laughs> it's a very different it's a very different context, a very different perspective, very different risk profile, very different strategic objectives, and so. And I wouldn't I wouldn't drum the beat of the unicorn hunter. I love I love dragon hunters actually above above all right. I love fun returners, and 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 I think it, it a lot boils down to that, right? Because there's we're hunting for different things at the end of the day. We're mm. trying to achieve it's, very different things. It's interesting that it's a, for you it's unicorns, for you it's something intermediate. For us, it's like we look at it from a portfolio perspective. So we look for neither unicorns nor dragons. For us, it's called Severus. We look for the companies which can sustain by having a bread and butter, uh, butter business and SME, but still go up the ladder into enterprise where they have the sherry on top in terms of very long contracts with high average contract values. So companies which are very close to cash. Uh, and for us, this is the way to go because you can nurture them and grow them steady, slow but steady, and can build very great cash flow positive businesses which create value throughout that approach and not by hyper growth. I create two billion in valuation with one billion in uh, revenue um, burned through five billion to generate the two or one billion revenue, which is like, okay, that doesn't make sense. Which is also right now crazy expensive, I would say. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it takes a lot of time uh, and uh, you're, you're exposing yourself even to more risk because you have to go to multiple rounds, multiple dilutions, and you literally die the moment where VCs say, okay, we can fund this. And there's this yeah. very weird magical ceiling in Germany where it becomes very hard to raise funds because you have to tap different top po pockets from the US, from institutional investors, from pension funds, endowments. And that's a different ballpark. You don't have too many entrepreneurs who have the skill set to do that. Yeah, and it's nice you said that, you know, every fund or some of our VC funds, they have really like, there was a specific reason why we invested into it. Either impact or a special strategy yeah. or, you know, for example, it's our AUXO with the female founders fund in terms of that. It had all like a specific strategy which the fund follows. and. They convinced us and we thought, you know, that's a great idea. I think it will be way harder for funds in the, or like for, I would say, better funds who just, uh, you know, you know, they just experienced, you know, they, or they did their return on just on the better factor and they didn't really generate alpha. So, you know, they were surfing the wave of the better to differentiate themselves from the other VC funds. And so um, I'm really interested how the next couple of months will really uh, turn out for VC funds in terms of, you know, how maybe they shift in their strategy, how they want to differentiate themselves from all the other funds, maybe also consolidate. That would be also uh, maybe an interesting thing to see that, you know, some VCs try to reduce cost and maybe, you know, they see some synergies within their portfolio when they consolidate. So I'm really looking forward. I want to I try to tease something out of you because you just said something about costs before you said about deploying capital efficiently could you expand a bit what do you mean by that because a skeptic listener might might feel ah that's that's someone that's adverse to fees uh, and that brings us to the old topic of and, and especially us doing a fund of funds play it's even worse right <laughs> so i think it would be great to hear your perspective there. it's a that's different as well when you go like for family offices and for maybe like angel investors or like for retail investors i would call them we also have a really, I would say, a hawk eye on the fee structure. So for us, a red flag normally is 
fees on the committed capital or not on the invested capital. It's just because we want to operate our family office or family offices, they see a family office like a business. Throughout the process, throughout, throughout the lifetime of the fund or? In the divestment period. Yeah, in, in the, the divestment It depends period. like, but in the divestment period. Um, but um, a fund or like you know, a family office operates like a company, like a real business. And we want to deploy our capital, which is scarce because yeah. what I say to investors or to startups, which makes the biggest difference between a family office and a fund, we have only one guy who has the capital, the yeah. principal, the founder, who did the exit, the family. We cannot raise somewhere else uh, money and deploy it. So we have only a very limited amount of capital. So for our objectives, extremely important to efficiently deploy the capital. And then fees yeah. is also a part of it. We have to look into it. So what's an appropriate fee structure looking at? Like you have 100% of the fund, what's the maximum which can actually go into fees like organizational expenses, management fees and setup cost? Where's the threshold? I have a number in, in, in mind, which I like. Uh, I looked at a lot of funds. I worked with a lot of funds and we in particular took lots of time to think about it. How do we actually draw fees? When do we draw fees? And how much do we draw to maximize the actual amount which we deploy into assets? Because when you kind of um, have a smaller spread between the fund size and the deployable capital, you increase obviously uh, the, the potential return because MOIC and TVPI get closer together. So it's easier to, to create like stellar fund returns. Mm -hmm. So do you have a number in, in, in top of your mind? No. <laughs> I have to pass on that. We don't have a number of that. I would say it's different. We, talk, we are open for every fund. So uh, it's no that, you know, of course, what we have to do, we have to analyze. It's like you know, every investor, like also a VC investor. It has um, to make sense. It has to make sense. And that's different. And if the fund and we, you know, we like the, the GP, the strategy makes 100% sense and the, everything is perfectly fine and they do a fee structure on committed capital and the fund is super expensive then we will also say let's do it because we believe in the yeah. in the idea yeah. or in the strategy but it's just one part of analyzing or like you know we do like yeah, a, no, no, a grading no. of if yeah. you want to invest or not the devil's advocate here would be well fees is one part of the equation because it's all about that mark to tvpi difference yeah. and there are ways a fund can offset the fee effect, right? There are ways, and, and there's also ways for fund of funds, right? So at the end of the day, it's, fees is one small part of that big equation of deploying capital efficiently, right? I would say my founder would say, you know, when a fund does like, you know, five, six, 10 X, no one gives like a flying hmm about the fees because they were, they were rich, you know, they made huge ton of money in a really short time. We always, you know, think about, you know, eight to 10 years. It's, it's really short when you take it into the investment horizon perspective. Of course, now we're getting into more choppy water. Yeah. And it's, I would say it's harder, or it's not possible, but we really harder to achieve the same returns which were achieved in the last couple of years. And that's more about, you know, macroeconomic reason, political reason. There are so many reasons why um, it's going to be harder. Um, I think it's just going to be harder on short term on paper, but in the long term, it's going to be the best vintage in the next decade. <laughs> but yeah. True that. And then, you know, this really, really famous saying under pressure, you know, you create diamonds. Yeah. And maybe if you have those maybe solid rocks or coals in your portfolio and they become now diamonds, then maybe like a 10 x is nothing because it will be like, you know, uh, a thousand x. But we as, you know, as a family office would say, 
we look very differently. We look on, you know, return on capital efficiently, how efficiently we can deploy capital and opportunity costs. And nobody talks about the opportunity costs. You know, we can, we can invest in VCs or we can go on the bond market yeah. and... Uh, We had this discussion earlier, that's why everyone is laughing. It's yeah. like, where, where's the magical yeah. threshold of what kind of money does a VC has to return that's, in terms of IRR yeah. to justify the illiquidness plus the risk? And it's very hard to answer. But the funny thing is, a private equity who is like in business for 40 years could not answer this the question. I would say it's not, it really depends on, and I would say... VC and PE are two asset classes which are necessary for every portfolio. That's 100% sure. And there's statistically data which clearly supports that. And luckily in every, I would say, strategic asset allocation which are done by banks, we see the, the PE and the VC, the liquid uh, share is getting bigger and bigger and bigger from year to year. However, um, you have to be careful that, you know, The, the liquidity of the investment makes it for some investors more uh, difficult to handle, I would say. How exposed are you guys in venture capital or let's, let's call it alternative assets to, to make it more gravel? It's like, especially as a family office, you said, okay, you're an asset allocator, you want to be diversified, you want to, of course, mitigate risk. But by nature, usually the highest yielding asset class, venture capital, has the lowest allocation looking at like all the stuff you've been doing from real estate to PE to bonds and name them all. So is there a magical number you, you're looking for? Is it yeah, like we have one. So we have our illiquid investments, which we don't count real estate into it, yeah. just private equity, private debt yeah. and venture capital is 10%. Other 10% of our uh, AUMs we want to maybe deploy in those uh, regions. However, it makes a little bit why we are different because we have our own scale apart, like we have our own founding company or incubator, we call it. Um, which are also illiquid. So we say we found our own companies. We don't want to get into so much into the VC space when we're also doing direct yeah. investments. And okay, so when you say uh, 10% to alternatives, you don't count your direct investments in that. That's no. in a bit of different bucket. It's a separate bucket. It's, yeah. a, it's a separate bucket. The 10% is really like, um, I would say, illiquid institutional products. Yeah. All right. Well, what's looking at all your allocations and all the buckets what's the outperformer as of now it's it's sad to say from you know from my side because i love you know private equity and capital markets but it's really the real estate it's you have steady cash flows and it's so predict it's not predictable but it's predictable in terms of you know cash flow also you know can then say you know the interest rates are so high and stuff like this but it's really still one of the the, the most profitable or return driver of our portfolio because the leverage impact has such a big, like, such a big um, um, impact on, on the, the return. But <laughs> we spoke about it just earlier. <laughs> no, no, totally. It makes all the sense. I mean, venture capital by nature is just illiquid and it's risky, but it usually yields, if you're in top quarter uh, like performance uh, terms, just the highest returns but but you have to be a good picker people say you know you're not really talking like too positive about vc for example i say venture capital on a fund basis is perfectly for every investors or every investor who wants to get in like a foot into the vc world for example i would say it's quite well it's way more risky 
for angel investors, in my opinion, to invest into companies they have no clue about. It's for me like going to the casino. This is exactly... Exactly. That's exactly our thesis. We have. I don't know how much you know about us, but at a UVC, <laughs> what we do is we do syndicates that primarily angels that join us in investing into funds. And we're exactly touting that horn all the time because it's... You're seeing so many people... You know, I think the most often heard story in angel investing is, well, I did five investments and now I'm kind of out of cash, so I'm out for two years or so, and then hopefully one of them will... And like, no way five are going to return anything, right? So, for example, our plan is to do like 15 at least a year. Yeah. This year we will not reach 15, but that's more because of, I would say, human capital shortages on our side right now. Yeah, you're setting things up. Let, let, me, let me ask you a parallel topic because we... we we were talking from a very quantitative perspective right now, but you also said that you've committed to funds because of the impact angle. Yeah. And I also want to ask you, I think I know the answer, but I want to ask you, you know, real estate is amazing, right? You just said that, but there is something that is non-quantitative with the idea of funding the future, which say. VC allows you to, right? And yeah. how much does that matter to you guys? It's a really interesting question, but... Well, the funny thing is, I would say there is a solution in quantitative real estate in terms of impact. And it's called the energetic restoration of buildings. Yeah. And that's what we focus on in our real estate portfolio. Yeah. So we're doing impact as well on our real estate side. Yeah. But I would say in terms of investments, yeah. um, we also look at VCs or also direct investments where there is a positive impact uh, which uh, the fund can make. For example, we invested in Tutane, which is a, a positive impact fund. My, my founder says, you know, we have now the capital and I want to give something back to the, you know, to the community in terms of mentoring, capital and anything else I can provide. Because, you know, I took something the last 10 years, uh, you know, I made money. Of course, he had to pay taxes, so of course he gave something back. But he wants to also say, you know, said, my time is not up to give back. And so that's really important for him um, that we have a strategic aim in terms of impact investment on the real estate side, in terms yeah. of energetic renovation, and then also on investment sides. How, how active or passive are you? Or do you want to be, as you mentioned earlier, that like... The thing which is scarce for you is the human resources and, you know, uh, like the, the ability just to, to be very active. Like looking at your fund investments, how active are you? Uh, so I would start, you know, there are some parts we totally do passive. And it's, for example, you know, a big part of our portfolio of our um, assets, which are just plain in ETFs, I would say. That's what I think should every uh, family office do because, you know, it's so hard to do, generate alpha in the, in, the, in the capital markets world. On the other side, real estate, venture capital and direct, we are extremely active. As, uh, so uh, as an LP in terms of VC, I would say we're not as active because we don't sign the sizes which really matter or whether VCs would say, okay, it's one of our biggest investors, so we have to care more about uh, them. But I would say on the direct investment cases, we are extremely active. We would like to work with them together. We want to see if there are any synergy effects we can um, develop as an as investor. And on the fund size, I would say that's the reason why we're hiring right now an investment manager. We, because we want to, we want to analyze or uh, we want to analyze more VC cases and we want to analyze more VC funds and say really, okay, this is a great VC 
and this is not a great VC, to then go to our angel investor network and say, you know, we have analyzed these funds, we have invested uh, um, there as well. Our investment manager tells us it's a really nice opportunity, you should invest as well. What's your magical power you bring to the table for a fund and for a direct investment? So usually, like an angel's uh, family office does as well, like you bring something which is like a domain expertise, knowledge, network, whatever. W what is yours? Like my or my like fund? the family office, family like in general. Office. I mean, like I would say, I don't, I don't have any expertise, so uh, I, I would, I would be no value driver. I would say that one. That's VC humbleness. Yeah. I was about to say this is this is this is going to be titled the the humble family office guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say first of all, we bring capital, which is I would say one of the most important thing because without capital you cannot invest. And what we do when we are really committed. Um, into a VC case or into any other case, we will target our angel investor network or other family office we know and say, you know, this is a great opportunity, you should invest as well. So that's one benefit VC gets when yeah. they work with us. And the funny thing is, the, VC, the, the family office space, it's really, it's a community. So when we invest in them, it's for them like made in Germany, I would say. When, when one family invests in this thing, okay, it can't be bad because, you know, they have uh, analyzed it, they have did their DD on the VC, they did all the other stuff, we should invest as well. And then on the other side, which we can also bring, for example, if it's like e-commerce, um, then we say my founder... He had like a really, uh, you know, one of the biggest, not Amazon aggregator, but aggregator, you know, like Amazon shop um, builder in Europe. You know, he knows how to do online e-commerce, for example. So, and um, he would say, you know, if you have anything to do with like direct to consumer or like any other stuff, you can always ask our founder. Anyone from the outside would quick look and then probably also expect that if they're investing in that space, you know, as a VC, then you're going to be more interested. Is that true or false? Because some would say, well, we, we, we like to complement our directs with also doing, uh, you know, VC investments in the same space. Or do you go the opposite route and say, we do that in direct, so don't come to me with more of that. <laughs> it depends. I know this word, it's, it's really Okay, hated. so you, you can see the bad ones quicker, so for that reason, they're quickly out. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, for example, you know, you know, it's just, you know, for example, my, my, my founder says, you know, my principal, He would right now invest so much into the e-commerce space. It's just because, you know, he said we had the Corona was the be best yeah, which best could happen yeah. to the e-commerce, you know, and it cannot really get better. And so he's saying, you know, there might be, you know, like a downturn right now, maybe also valuation downturn. So like, if, for example, like an eco, like an VC, which would focus just on e-commerce would be not into our best focus. But it doesn't mean that when we also do the direct investments uh, in that area that we don't want to invest in a VC, which also uh, does direct investment in that area. For example, sometimes we say we have to invest into VCs or we have to take VCs into our book because a VC sometimes gets the better deals. And we have that's totally true and we know it. And that's the reason why you have to invest into VCs as a family office as well sometimes yeah. to get into the top-notch deals. Yeah. But that would also be my main argument and also why I would always say, well, even though you are very active in, 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 in e-commerce as an example, then you'd still do the best VCs there. And you, have a, you probably know them already because you're active there. And as you said, the main thing you guys bring is the capital in the end. Yeah. 
And yes. most VCs will say, well, give me capital, I'll be your friend. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, you know, it's like in an upmarket, capital was a commodity, so it was just vastly accessible, so you had to bring something else because good funds have been oversubscribed. In a down market, it, it kind of it, it reverses. So it's like, okay, bring me the capital, that's absolutely enough, I'll take it. Um, but on the other hand, if somebody as well brings something which is very valuable, and in this case, the second layer for everyone who's raising right now is obviously network and access to others and signaling like, look, this one is participating in our fund, like name dropping is a thing, institutional, family offices, like if you can just bring this up, say, hey, they've invested, um, it gives you this certain halo where people always said, oh, they invested, okay, that must be good. So uh, obviously just the brand can be a very, very powerful asset aside of money. And this is nothing you literally have to, to work on. You just have it because you have done this for the past 20 years and you build a brand. You mentioned a really important topic brand building in the family office space. We are trying to do our best um, because through brand building you get the nice deals and uh, that's that's reason why we love to speak to a lot of people who want to expand our network and uh, we do that also through VCs and we say okay um, maybe we don't invest in your fund but if you have a nice investment which fits to us we are very happy to do like a co-investment with you to take also a share and support you there as well or do some or you can think about us like an angel investor you're going to take uh, within the cap, cap table um yeah but the problem here is, is it's funny because like you run a VC, you have a co-investment opportunity, so the most obvious thing is you ask your LPs first. If everybody says, hey, no, thank you, then they're going to come to you because you didn't invest in the fund. It's like, I have this special opportunity only for you. And it's amazing, you should do this. So the likelihood that you will not see top-notch is very high. You're going to see the end of top-notch, and this is not what you want to do. So uh, that's why I think like from a family office, multifamily office perspective, having like a brand blended um, approach to fund investing, having... 10, 15 funds with 30 companies each, having a portfolio which is indexed 300 to 450 companies, then do specific picks on the ones which are interested which you, like, because you can A, build conviction, B, you have the entry point and C, you are the first person to be asked, not the thir third or not the fourth. And that's a very hard aspect, even though if you have a brand, even though if you have the relationship, you still be not the first one to be asked to invest. It's funny that you bring that up, I just want to add to it because one of the things I do think about with the funds that we have invested is, and it's it's not putting the onus or them or a critique to any of the funds that we were working with. It's just like, I do think about, are we getting offered the good co-invest, right? Or not that we're doing it now, we're actually never done a deal like that, but we'd be interested in looking at them, right? And so I think about, we're such a small LP. We are an LP. We're such a small LP. Am I, am I getting those? And I, to be very honest, I don't think we would get the hot ones. Uh, go first, but I have a good answer how I see the world. It's, but. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting topic. I would say there's a switch right now from seller to buyer. And this is also in the family office space. I marked 100% 2021. The family office, they only got the shit deals. Like the real bad ones. Like if you're a startup and you're not a, you can't raise anything, you go to a family office and they, they say they deploy their dumb capital. And what happened, for example, and then, you know, at a certain growth, a certain size, big startups go to banks and they say, okay, VCs don't want to give us any money more. What can we do? And then the banks come and say, we have family offices. Maybe uh, you can pitch them um, your idea and they will invest. 
in 2021, 2022, I would say, or 2020, family offices were in the food chain, the last person to eat. Except you were like a huge family office and yeah. everybody knew you and uh, stuff like this. But now there's like a shift. We have some founders who come to us now and say, we want to invest or we want to have a family office as an LP rather than a VC. Why? The pressure a family office gives in terms of growth is way less and the strategic impact they want to you know, have is way less. Like a family office sometimes it's more like you convince us about your idea, you have a great team, do it now. This is in a way a stupid thing to dive into because we don't have too many founders listening to our podcast, right? But I've always thought that there's so many people raising VC money, uh, founders raising VC money that should not be raising VC money, right? And they, because they're not on that path, it's not. And, and then there's VCs that are not really VCs <laughs> and, and they're just investing in startup stuff. But in my perspective, you know, they're not looking for the big enough uh, valuation increases or, or, you know, growth journeys, whatever you, however you want to frame that, right? To be really put in the real VC bucket. And then now they've all, everyone has had their pants burned on, on people not knowing what they're doing. And, and I, I cannot help but think that what you just described is, well, those founders should not ever have raised VC. And neither should they today, right? It's only sobering, and I'm happy to hear that they're, they're, they are seeing that there's an alternative to VC and that we needed a market to blow up for them to realize that maybe my business isn't fit for VC. But especially what you picture, not every case which is built is made for VC. And uh, sometimes it needs patient capital, like people who are evergreen, who don't have like, oh, look, by the way, I have to divest in six years. You're going to be ready to sell your company, right? And so, I'm like, you've never met a fucking VC? If you think that that's patient capital. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did that guy like, look patient Picking up on, on, on what you said about like, do I see great deals? I think it's very interesting. It's completely unattached whether you're going to put a 200K check or a 4 million check into a fund. Unless you have a side letter, then you're like literally like, okay, I'm going to see these deals and I have the first dip and I can and execute upon that. It's building the personal relationship between the LP and the GP. Because at the end of the day, it's on his decretion to say, I'm going to give this to you and to you. And as an LP, who am I going to give it to you? All of them who want to give me money, give me one thing, money. The second question is, what are they adding to this specific company? If it's access, knowledge, whatsoever, which is highly relevant for them to become successful, I'm going to pass it to exactly that specific LP. So for us, it's always like, how can we build a good relationship with the LPs of interest? And for them, it should be the same thing. How can they build a specific relationship to the GP? If you never call them, in four years throughout the investment period and all of a sudden the investment period after five year ends and there's an opportunity and you call them eight times a week, you're like, well, we have not built a relationship. It's the first time you literally call me. But if you are interested, if you actively help, obviously the likelihood increases that you're having the first dip on a great deal, whether you put 200K or like two, two million, so. For me, like it's, our view is like, as an LP, you should try everything you can do to help your GP. Why? Yeah, so it's like, it's a no-brainer. Not say. every LP acts like that. Yeah, but, but I don't understand why. Resources, knowledge. Okay, could be, but you know, if you have the knowledge and if you have the resources, it's like, okay, then you know, okay, maybe if you, you know, if I put everything in, the others will um, get the return as well and didn't do nothing. 
but still like i would say you know but you get the return as well yeah. so, so it, it should be an intrinsic motivation to say i'm going to help it's like with a startup i give you money and i give you everything i know i can and my network because i want you to succeed and i don't care if all the other succeeds it's fantastic so everyone gets rich but for me obviously the intrinsic motivation that they become successful is very high because i have skin in the game it's as simple as that And now I want to hear you give your shout out and for our audience I just want to say it's super funny because you're you're mentioning someone here who you you said something earlier where I thought ha he must know that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so give us your shout out. Uh it's Jan Foss. He works for BN Capital, which is always say one of the um more known family offices in in Berlin and through him I got the job. Um he was the guy I always talked to and then he said he referred me to Jens to my founder. And so he works also as my sparing partner in some ideas and in some areas. And so great investor, great family officer and he has an extremely, you know, if you read his LinkedIn post, he know he knows his stuff Absolutely. and you can learn you can learn a lot from him. So guys I want to take us into the three biggest learnings from ULP investing. We will not be diving deep, but I want to just hear them from you. I would say uh, time is important. Um really choose who you want to talk to. Don't talk to every VC because you know you have limited time. When they ask you for a meeting, look at their website, look at uh, look at how they invested and if it's really interesting you then you meet with them. because you know it makes no sense with uh, meeting with a thousand LPs uh, VCs that's that's i would say one of the most important learnings and then which is quite important ask the VC if they really know the portfolio companies it's it's crazy like do you know the management team um, how you interact with the management team because you know you really sometimes you know hear it when they talk about every detail about the portfolio company then they then you know Okay they really have their skin in the game it's not just buying and holding it's more you know creating the alpha get into the business model and create value I think that's a really good one it's not it, it's actually funny cuz I, i and i'm i'm messing up Andreas is hosting here but <laughs> but it, it's sometimes you talk with these gps and they just get so fucking excited about the companies they're investing in to a level where sometimes you even find yourself zoning off a tiny bit right yeah, but it's actually a good right sign yeah. but it's actually a good sign it's actually a yeah. good sign because as you say they are really in it right they're really 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 kind of working with these companies i love that yeah i would say it's huge important now let's go to the quick fire round <laughs> and now the quick fire The very first question in the quick fire round is what advice would you give to your own 10-year younger self? And that's to 16-year-old Nils. That's 16 years old. Um right now, I would say enjoy your life to the fullest. I would say that's always the first advice I give. Try to look left and right all the time. Don't have like, you know, like a, like only one vision, you know, uh, and the last one is um become like a, or do something in handcrafts, man, like, you know, It's like a market which is so unsaturated and uh, it can be so it's like the best market I would say to work in. So investing in VC is not a handcraft? <laughs> Could be. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um 
but um, physically handcraft, uh, ah. I would uh, then refer. Did a lot of mistakes. I like that one. And now I'd ask you, what are your top tips for emerging VCs racing across Europe? First learning by far um, is know how to pitch your VC and get um, expert help, I would say. You know, get the coaching uh, where, you know, get coaching, active coaching um, in terms of how to pitch your VC and how to pitch your strategy. What, you know, I experience a lot. Um, after 30 seconds, I'm not really interested, but it's not, sometimes it's not about the VC, but it's just about, you know, how they talk to you. There's like no fire and there's like, they explain something which is, it's not really relevant for you. And so I would say get uh, professional help uh, in terms of pitching, um, which I also did or got when I was at uh, my bank. Uh, then he said, you know, you have to get um, um, coaching in terms of how to pitch because, as I said, 30 seconds in the beginning are the most important 30 seconds you have and you have to convince the other party in the first 30 seconds, I would say. You have another one that I know that we spoke about just before, which is know your team very well have a great story for each team member. Yeah. I love that one. That's for emerging, um, I would say, funds extremely important because I would say emerging funds would have not the team size as well-established funds. Um, and so I always ask them, you know, okay, who's in your team and who's the team member? And when they don't really know it, yeah. uh, it's like a really <laughs> bad answer because it shows like there's no really team spirit and there is like no... Um, they don't know what's going on in the company. And why do I want to have team spirit? Because I would say for uh, merging VC, maybe you have to work way harder than an established VC. And you have to have a really nice and great team to achieve that, yep. to become from emerging to uh, maybe established. Absolutely. And now the final one, what is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've started investing in venture? Sometimes it's really, well, it pays out way more when you reinvent an old idea or an idea which was already in place than invent something which has no use. It's sometimes really when I look at startups and ventures, I say, you know, I don't need it. Nobody needs it. Maybe you should focus or pivot your strategy to something, you know, in the same space, but the market is already there. So that's my statement, I would say. Thank you so much for joining us today. It has been amazing to have you with us. No? Thank you for the invitation. Thanks. You're welcome. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values, values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting, acting.